worship team very much. Let's uh, open the Word of God, please, to John chapter 6, and we're going to continue our mini-series, The Seven Signs of the Gospel of John, The Seven Sign Miracles in the Gospel of John. And we will um, actually look at John 6, verses 16 through 40 today, although we'll back up a little bit before we start that to get the context. And in this passage, we're going to see one reason that the Lord Jesus Christ is so controversial, so offensive to so many. He's, he's comforting to us who trust in him. He's confounding to everybody else. And it goes back to some of the things he's said and did and who he claimed to be. So today we're going to see that in John 6 that Jesus, the water walker, is the bread of life. But uh, as is our custom, let's pray first for our teachability, for our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. And um, Danny Pollock, if you would, lead us in opening prayer. Okay, thank you very much. Last uh, Sunday, we did a special one-week study of Psalm 11. What should a Christian do when his or her society is in spiritual and moral freefall? And basically, as we look at that Psalm of David, we saw that he and we should punt panic and pursue perseverance when our culture, our society, is in spiritual and moral freefall. Uh, but today, as I say, we're going to jump back on the wagon of the um, mini-series, The Seven Sign Miracles in the Gospel of John. We come to the fifth sign today, the uh, miracle of Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want you to notice something here. As you look at this uh, breakdown or this listing of those seven signs, starting with the water into wine, uh, secondly, the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum. Three, the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Uh, four, the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families, which James Mitchell did a, a nice job describing and teaching and exhorting from a couple of weeks ago. And then today we're going to see the fifth sign, Jesus walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. And then... Six, the sixth sign is the healing of the man born blind in John 9. And then the seventh and final of the seven signs in the Gospel of John will be the supernatural resuscitation. It's not the resurrection of Lazarus. It's the supernatural resuscitation of someone who's been biologically dead for four days. And we'll see that in chapter 11. But as you look at that list, I want you to notice that these miracles get more and more spectacular. Now, John's not making that up, but he is putting them in that order, and he's putting them in, in chronological order, too, but he's emphasizing that uh, these miracles get more and more spectacular. And when you look at this slide of kind of a schematic of the overall Gospel of John, you see that the body of the Gospel has three parts. In one nineteen through 12.50, we have the seven signs, the water into wine all the way through the supernatural resuscitation of Lazarus. Then in the middle of the body of the book, chapters 13 through 17, we have the upper room discourse. And finally, in chapters 18 
through 20, we have the ultimate sign, the ultimate guidepost, the, the ultimate miracle that validates the claims of Christ, and that would be, of course, his resurrection. But uh, as we work through these, and uh, if we stay on schedule, and Lord willing, um, we will look at the uh, healing of the man born blind next week, next Sunday, and then in two weeks, we'll look at the supernatural resuscitation of Lazarus. And then, on uh, if I did the math right, on August the 21st, we'll be done with the seven signs, but we're actually going to look at an eighth sign, because in the epilogue, not the body of the book with the seven signs, but in the epilogue of the book, the last chapter, we actually see another miracle um, where the Lord Jesus helps the apostles catch 153 fish, and we'll tell you what that 153 number means in that context. But that's where we're headed toward. And then, Lord willing, on the last Sunday of August, we will start a new series on the life of Solomon. We'll see that the wisest man who ever lived did a lot of really stupid things, the kind of things you and I can do sometimes, too. Okay, let's look at John chapter 6. Jesus, the water walker, is the bread of life. And I think it's important, as you can see here on this PowerPoint slide, that we're going to have to back up just a touch and say a few words about the first 15 verses of chapter 6 of the feeding of the 5,000. Because when you look at this chapter, John chapter 6 overall, or at least this first portion of the chapter, you see first a crowd of people experiences Jesus. That is, they see him feed 5,000 plus people with one uh, young boy's happy meal. That's verses 1 through 15. And then if you jump over the walking on the water account in verses 16 through 21, you go from the crowd who received the feeding who were the recipients of the feeding of the 5,000. See that crowd experiencing Jesus in that sense. Then, after you have the account of the walking on the water in verses 22 through 27, you see that same crowd misses the meaning of their experience of Jesus. They actively pursue him, but for the wrong reasons. And then, finally, in verses 28 through 40, in this overall unit of thought, we see the crowd's mistake, they missed the meaning, is used as an opportunity for Jesus to explain salvation by grace through faith in him. So, before we look at the fifth sign, the walking on the water, let me just say a word about the first 15 verses of John 6. A crowd of people, quote-unquote, experiences Jesus seeing him feed 5,000-plus people using only one little boy's Happy Meal. Now, as I say, James did a wonderful job um, teaching that passage a few weeks ago, so I won't repeat what he said. But to sum up, I think we can say that Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was a spectacular miracle of creation, bread from heaven, bread from the heavenly messenger, bread uh, through the miraculous means of the Messiah from heaven, and it spotlights, it's a signpost validating and demonstrating the omnipotence of Christ, 
in other words, his deity, and is designed to, to validate that Jesus is whom he claimed to be. He, in fact, is the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the world. Okay, So we have the crowd experiencing that now. Let's go to verse 16. We read this. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, there on the uh, northeast quadrant of the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, maybe even in the central uh, part of the eastern shoreline. And after getting into a boat, they, the apostles and the disciples, started to cross the Sea of Galilee to go toward Capernaum, which is their home base now. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, where is Jesus? Well, here's what happens. Um, If you go back to verse 14 of John 6, after the miracle of the feeding of 5,000, we read this. Therefore, when the people, the recipients of the free meal, saw the sign, the miracle which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who's coming to the world. So Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now he went there not just to get away from the crowd and to let that energy uh, dissipate, but also to pray. So he's praying somewhere in the hills and mountains near the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's getting dark. The disciples get in the boat uh, without him. Uh, and I'm sure that interacted on this, and he just said, I'll, I'll meet you later. You guys just get in the boat and go. Um, and you might think, well, what's so bad about the crowd wanting to make Jesus king? They want a kingdom without the cross. They want the lion before the lamb. Uh, they want Jesus to be king because they want him to set up the first welfare state where he will provide free food every day miraculously. That's you're going to see this come out later as they interact with him further, but that's what's, what's, what's about to happen. But let's look at the walking on the water here. So the apostles are out in the Sea of Galilee. It's dark, but they're fishermen. They know how to navigate um, across the lake. And Jesus is in the boat because he has sent the crowd away and has gone off to pray. And then it says, The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. And in fact, the parallel accounts tell us it's a west wind, and they're trying to go west, so they ain't getting anywhere. In fact, they're being pushed out toward the middle of the lake, away from where they want to go, Capernaum. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near the boat, and they were frightened. there's There's a time gap of many hours between verse 17 and 18. John's using what's called literary compression here, to leave out what he considers unnecessary detail, and just saying the guys are out in the middle of the, of the lake, they're running out of gas. Um, I know they don't use gasoline, but they're rowing. They're tired. Their their muscles are in tetany, you know, so uh, they're not able to function very well, and they're wondering if they're going to survive this thing. And then they saw Jesus walking on the sea, but they don't know who it is. They just see what appears to be a person walking across the water and approaching them. Now, we all know people can't walk on water. So one of the parallel accounts, I think it's Matthew, says that their first assumption was 
that this person was a ghost. Okay, so the, the idea that um, miracles happen all the time and the apostles always understood and depended on miracles and, and this and that doesn't really happen. And even when Jesus in the midst is in the midst of a miracle, they don't necessarily assume it's him. Here they're just freaking out. They know people can't walk on water. Now Jesus can, and he did here, but they haven't figured that out yet. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And the may plus the negative, or the, the negative may particle plus the present active imperative means stop being afraid. Don't panic. Stop panicking. So they were willing, poor translation, they were delighted to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now we've got a big miracle and a little miracle here. The big miracle is Jesus walking on the water. The little miracle is the fact that once it gets in the boat, boom, the boat is sitting at the dock there in Capernaum, right? So um, I want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, this was a sign for believers. I know Judas is in the boat, too. He's not a believer and never was. But 11 twelfths of the audience here are believers. These guys are already believers um, that Jesus is Messiah. But this is a sign to strengthen and confirm their faith and our faith as they continue to, and as we continue to follow him. Now, I know that there's a lot of different ways to try to explain this way. Uh, some would say, well, Jesus was actually on the shore, right, kind of where the, the water and the shoreline met, and from a distance it looked to them like he was walking on water, or he was walking on rocks, or he was walking on a sandbar, or he was walking on a log. Uh, that's not what the text is saying, and that's the, not the import of this miracle. Um, skeptics who insist that uh, natural laws and modern physics uh, make this story impossible miss the point. It is impossible from the sense of natural law and modern physics. I mean, this transcends those kind of things. This is a supernatural act. Um, if you were to say, well, how could he do that? I'd say, I have no idea. I mean, the Gospels never attempt to tell us the mechanisms of these things. These things transcend normal time, space, physical law, uh, physical principles. It's a, it's a spiritual, supernatural thing. And by definition, it can't be explained by natural laws or physics or anything else. So this is what happened. Uh, this is what the guy saw. He got in the boat in the middle of the sea. Then, boom, they're a dry dock. Lots of interesting things happening here. But this would be one of those miracles I'm sure the apostles, after the resurrection, thought about a lot as they faced all the persecution and ultimately the martyrdom they had to deal with. So, uh, we saw the crowd experience Jesus, get the uh, enjoy the uh, dynamics of the feeding of 5,000. We've seen um, Jesus walking on the water as a sign to believers then and now. And now let's move to the next portion of this passage, verses 22 through 27. The crowd, meaning the crowd that the day before had experienced the feeding of 5,000, totally misses the meaning of their experience of Jesus. And the good news is they actively pursue him. The bad news is they're just looking for more free food. Okay, Look at verse 22. The next day, 
the crowd that stood on the other side, the eastern side of the sea, where the feeding of the 5,000 had taken place, saw there was no other small boat there associated with Jesus and the disciples uh, except one, and that Jesus had not gotten in that boat the night before. Okay, they, they saw the boat when they left, the functioning the day before. That boat's now gone. They know Jesus didn't get in the boat, so uh, they weren't sure what had happened. They just knew that his disciples had gone away alone. So they're not privy to all the details. They don't know about Jesus walking on the water. Uh, there had come other small boats overnight or that next morning from Tiberias, another city on the Sea of Galilee, near to the place where they ate the bread, the feeding of 5,000, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, because the disciples had left their boat, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're actively pursuing him. And you might think, well, that's great. But as we always say, you know, doing the will of God is not just a what, it's a when and a how. And uh, there's such a thing as a good, good work, and there's such a thing as a bad, good work. A good, good work is when you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? I mean, you should have told us you were leaving. That's, that's the import of this. This isn't just a question of curiosity. This is kind of a rebuke. Why would you leave without us? And again, you might think, well, that's wonderful. They want to hang around the Lord Jesus. Uh, not when you find out why. Now, you're going to see uh, why right now. Look at verse 26, 27. Jesus answered them. Jesus responded to them. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, that's the good news, here's the bad news, not because you saw signs, Simeon, not because you saw miracles that pointed and validated me, pointed to me and validated me as the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but the reason you seek me is because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes. Don't be obsessed. Don't order your whole life for the next meal. Um, but instead, focus on and pursue the food which endures to eternal life. Now, who's going to give you eternal life? Well, Jesus says, which the Son of Man, that's a title for him, will give to you because on him the Father, God, has set his seal. God the Father is the architect of the plan of salvation. God the Son is the active agent of the plan of salvation. And God the Holy Spirit is the activating agent. He convicts, he draws, he uh, regenerates those who believe. So you're seeing some uh, the exclusivity and the deity of Jesus uh, being emphasized here in this passage. Let's back up a little bit. Um, let me ask you a question. What one thing makes good food even better? When somebody else pays for it, or when somebody else provides it. You see, the, the crowd's initial reaction to the feeding of the 5,000, uh, their response to their experience with Jesus, was they wanted to take him by force to make him king, to make him lord, but not as an expression of saving faith, 
but rather as a desire to put Jesus on the throne of the first welfare state. So that... Um, so that uh, they could continue to get these free meals every day. That's why he confronts them in verse 26. You seek me, not because you saw miracles that validated me as the Messiah, but because um, you wanted free food. You seek me not because you see me as the issue and the issuer of eternal life, but because you wanted food for your physical life. There's nothing wrong with having a nice lunch or a nice dinner, but the next meal... Uh, shouldn't be at the center of your existential existence. And when you're looking at the Creator, the coming consummator, and the Savior of the world in the face, and upset with Him for leaving because you want more free food, <laughs> you're way out of bounds, to use a golfing term. Now notice, uh, when they basically kind of confront Him and, and say, boy, you know, when did you get here? He kind of comes right back and he says, hey, we got a problem here, and it's not me, it's you. Yeah, you're seeking me. You're going out of your way to find where I am, not because of any spiritual reason, but only because you want another free, uh, free uh, meal. You want more food, more free food. And that is, he says, basically you should focus on eternal things. Uh, even everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, the word, the, the title Son of Man uh, sometimes is belittled by certain people. Uh, they'll say, uh, skeptical type thinkers, they'll say things like, well, you know, Jesus didn't really, even in the Gospels, he doesn't refer to himself as the Son of God very often. Uh, he, much more often does he call himself the Son of Man. And we all know that's just a human uh, term for somebody who's... Uh, you know, a really enlightened human being. Um, not true. And it's true that he does use the term Son of Man for himself a lot more than he uses the term Son of God. But the term Son of Man goes back to Daniel 7.13. And in that passage, you see a scene in heaven at the end of the end times, just before what we, what we would call the second advent of Christ and what Old Testament Jewish believers would call the glorious appearing of the Messiah as the lamb, or as the lion. Of the, of the tribe of Judah. Uh, you see a scene in heaven just before the glorious appearing of the Messiah to end history on God's terms. And you see um, the Son of Man, a person, an exalted person, the second person in the Trinity called the Son of Man who comes before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and who's recognized by God the Father as his agent of salvation and consummation of human history. So that term is not just a messianic title. It's a term that, uh, that affirms uh, the sovereignty and, uh, and quite frankly, the uh, exalted deity of Jesus Christ. So don't allow people to um, belittle that title or, or cause you to misunderstand its significance. Okay. We saw a crowd of people experiencing Jesus, feeding of the 5,000, then we saw Jesus walking on the water to the disciples. Then we see the crowd that got the free food, um, actively pursuing Jesus, but only for more free food. And now, really the climax of the passage, verses 28 through 40, we see the crowd's mistake is used as an opportunity 
for our Lord Jesus to explain salvation by grace through faith in detail. So let's look at this. And you actually have a question-answer followed by a question-answer followed by a command by the crowd and then an answer by Christ. So you have that kind of format. So let's work through the first set of questions and answers here. Look at verse 28 and 29. Uh, Jesus says, uh, Therefore they said to him, uh, not Jesus, but the, the, the crowd asked the question, Jesus answered. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we, we may work the works of God? Now this is a culture that has been told that salvation was something uh, you got the old-fashioned way. You had to earn it. 613 do's and don'ts had been teased out of the Torah uh, and broken down and analyzed, and you had to keep the law good enough, fully enough, to earn your salvation. And so they're thinking in those categories. And so Jesus is basically saying, I'm the one who gives eternal life. You need to think about that. And then they say, well, what do we got to do? How do we receive that eternal life? What should we do that we may work the works of God? Now, I quite often will say, the only place in the Bible where somebody is asked point blank, uh, what must I do to be saved, is Acts 16.30. Because that's Paul and Philippi. And when the jailer asked him that question, and then Paul's answer in Acts 16.31 is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and your household. I mean, everybody in your in your family will be saved if they'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, children, old people, young people, uh, males, females, doesn't matter. And so, you know, I often say that it's the only place in the Bible somebody asks that kind of question directly in those in those words. But here you've got really the same thing, and this is, if possible, even better because you've got unbelievers asking. Okay, what do we got to do to get eternal life? You give eternal life, what do we got to do to get it? Now, he's already said, I give it. Uh, and what he ultimately means by that is I want to give it as a gift to those who trust me for it, to those who through faith. Faith is a rational act, but it's not a meritorious work. It's the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. So they say uh, from their categories, and they're making a category mistake, but they are asking the right person the right question now. What should we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered, verse 29, This is the work of God. This is what the deal is. That you believe in him whom he, God the Father, has sent. God the Father is the sender. God the Son is the sendee. God the Father is the architect, the author of the plan of salvation. God the Son is the active agent. And so the Lord Jesus um and he, he said earlier, you know, that God the Father has put his seal on me. Uh, I'm in a subordinate role. It's very important in theology to realize that ontology or uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, at the level of being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are absolutely equal. Same essence, same attributes, uh, total equality, okay? But, when it comes to the plan of salvation, they have different functions. They have different roles. Um, the Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. Um, when you're in the army, a, a general might send a private or a sergeant or a lieutenant or uh, even a, 
a colonel somewhere, but the colonel doesn't send the general anywhere. The lieutenant doesn't send the general anywhere. A sergeant doesn't tell a general where to go. A private certainly doesn't order a general around. So the Lord Jesus voluntarily took a subordinate role in function in the outworking of the plan, but the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal. So there's a difference between uh, ontology and function. Uh, You see this in marriage when men and women uh, are equal at the level of of ontology. I mean, um, Peter himself says, uh, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way and grant them honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. But we have different roles to play in the outworking. So they ask him the ultimate question from their perspective, and he says, here's the deal. Believe in him. Believe in the Son of Man, Daniel 7, who ultimately at the end of the end times, will end history in God's terms, but also uh, realize that the Messiah is not just a, a lion, he's also a lamb. Believe in him, as Jesus referring to himself in the third person there, whom he, God the Father, has sent as the architect of the plan. God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So what do we got to do to be saved? Believe in him whom God the Father has sent to be the Savior. That's how you get saved. Now here's the second set of questions and answers. Look at verse 30 and 31. So they said to him, okay, we're supposed to believe in you for eternal life. What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Uh, They're basically saying, prove it. And that's kind of insulting because the fourth sign of the seven signs in John was the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the fifth one's the walking on the water. They didn't see that. They don't know about that. Okay, we'll give them a pass on that. But they've seen uh, a miracle that's renowned worldwide and has been since it happened, right? So everybody knows about it. Uh, Often imitated, never duplicated kind of thing, right? Uh, but this is kind of a little insulting. They're kind of saying the reason we haven't believed is you don't haven't given us enough information yet, uh, and that's seldom the problem with people who tell you that. It's usually their hearts, not their heads, right? So they said to him, "What do we? What do you do for a sign?" <laughs> this is all about the seven signs. They've seen a sign, but it's never good enough, right? So we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? And then they kind of go and hint, hint, hint. You know, you, you gave us food for a day yesterday. Uh, Moses gave us, our forefathers, during the Exodus, food for 40 years. Why don't you feed us for 40 years? Then we can talk. That may be the implication here. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they're basically saying, that was nice what you did yesterday, but we need more. (laughs) Uh, Keep feeding us. Keep proving it. And uh, maybe uh, you'll be lucky enough we'll uh, believe in you. That's not the way it works, of course. We're the lucky ones, meaning the fortunate ones. Not, uh, I like to say, God doesn't need your help. And he certainly doesn't need my help. He can get by fine without Brad McCoy. He can get by fine without you. The, the, the wonder of his grace is he wants us. And he makes his draft picks. And then he allows us to get between the lines and actually take some swings and throw some pitches in, in the real game of life. And we get a chance to actually contribute to the team. Uh, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Okay, 
So, what do you do for a sign that we may see and believe? Uh, prove to us you're the Messiah, kind of like Moses, uh, you know, who gave bread from heaven to our forefathers for 40 years. And uh, look what the Lord does here. First, he kind of does a theological correction for them. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave the bread out of heaven. Okay? Moses was just kind of the the messenger boy. Okay? Moses didn't produce manna every day for you. Uh, it was my father. And he's not just the one who gave the manna, but he's giving you the true bread out of heaven. And the true bread of heaven, capital B, is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Boom. Uh, that's a pretty cool title, to be the bread of life. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful titles for uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John, starting with the, the, the word, Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word... Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and uh, you know what? I'm drawing a blank on my favorite verse there. That's okay, folks. Hold on. You draw a blank, go back to Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, which is the title for Jesus, how do I know that? I'll show you in a minute. Was with God the Father, and he's a distinct person from God the Father, and also the Word was God, was deity himself, okay? The anarthrous use of theos for that first reference to God means we're talking about a different person. The um, articular, you know, I got that wrong. The articular use with the first appearance of Theos means we're talking about a specific person, a different person, God the Father. The word was with the God, God the Father. The anarthros, that is no definite article with the word Theos. And that second statement in verse 1, and the word was God, means not that the Word and God the Father are the same person, but they're the same in essence or quality. Okay, So, yeah, you have all these wonderful titles, and one of the uh, titles that uh, uniquely apply to Jesus is He is the Bread of Life. You know, bread's called the Staff of Life. Jesus is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life. So we've seen a question and an answer. What do we got to do? To be saved, basically. And Jesus says, believe in the one God has sent to be the Messiah. Believe in me. And then they ask another question. Well, why don't you do some signs for us? Why don't you prove it? We want you to prove it. Would you prove it so we can see and believe? And Jesus says, you know, uh, forget about Moses giving you bread. That was God. And God's giving you something better than manna in me. I am the bread of life. I am the giver of eternal life. Now, we go from questions and answers to command and answer or response by Jesus. Verse 34, here's a command. Then they said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. They're still thinking in terms of more breads and bread and baskets. Okay, And he's talking about eternal bread, eternal substance, eternal life. right? And this is seen clearly in this wonderful response, which so many of us hold so dear. Look at verse 35 and following. He's basically going to say, look, uh, I'm the bread of life. I'm the giver of eternal life. I'm the one who will receive anyone who comes to me uh, recognizing their need. He wants me to save them. Jesus says to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. 
coming and believing are the same thing. Thirsting and hunger, hunger are the same thing. This is parallelism, okay? It's just saying, I'm the source of eternal life. I'm the giver. I'm the issue and the issuer of eternal life to all who believe. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet don't believe. Uh, you're just looking for me for physical sustenance, not for spiritual. All the Father gives me will come to me. Uh, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. What a wonderful promise. If you're a believer in Jesus, you can put your name in the blank there. Uh, Michael Birch will not be cast out. Uh, Doug Strange will not be cast out. Uh, much more importantly, Brad McCoy will not be cast out. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. How to explain that? We already have. Is God the Father and God the Son? Or are they co-equal, co-eternal? Yeah. Do they have different functions in plan of salvation? Yeah, they do. Jesus voluntarily took the role of the sendee, the active agent of salvation. Uh, and then he says, and boy, you got to love verse 39 and 40. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me. God the Father is the architect of the plan of salvation. That of all he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That's kind of a general statement. Here's a little bit more specific, reinforcing it. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, as the architect of the plan of salvation, that everyone, doesn't matter what color, country, or culture, according to Scripture, there's only one race. It's the human race. And as Carl Perkins said, if you don't start moving, you may finish in last place. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son with the eyes of faith and believes in Him, has eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. This tractor beam takes your soul in the presence of um, Jesus Christ in heaven, and he receives you with a big smile on his face. And we all tend to think of what's the worst thing we've done lately. We can remember we haven't shunted to the back of our ability to forget how slimy we can be, and we tend to think, oh, you know, he's going to kind of give us a angry look and just let us in, even though we're believers, but uh, no, nothing's it's like that at all. There's going to be a judgment seat of Christ event, First Corinthians uh, 3, uh, verse 1 through verse 4, chapter 4, verse 5, and believers that don't produce consistent good, good works on the foundation of salvation will receive forfeiture of reward, commendation, medals, letter jackets, the kind of things uh, that people on the team get when they show up, work hard, and do the right things, right? But uh, as Howard Hendricks said, at the uh, judgment seat of Christ, which is only for the set of church-age saints, it's only believers that are there, uh, it's kind of like college graduation because some people graduate uh, uh, magna cum laude and a few people graduate lordy how come but they all graduate and they all get their diploma um, verse 40 is such a wonderful promise uh, so many people have uh, memorized that verse if you like to underline and circle things in your bible I would definitely circle verse 40 Jesus says this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And then he says, I myself will raise him up. And he said earlier, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Boom. 
goes the dynamite. Okay, let's uh, take this to heart. You know, Jesus walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee was a unique sign miracle, validating the truth that he is God in the flesh. He is the Savior of the world, the Jewish Messiah. He is, in fact, the issue and issuer of eternal life to all who believe in him. Now, that truth is comforting to, with a capital C to all of us who do believe in him 